Well, Merry Christmas to you. If you haven't gotten your shopping done, Quick Trip is still open. Cheese curd and chips are always good. And uh, Amazon, I think, is um, even with free delivery. I don't know if you'll get it by tomorrow, but really Christmas has one focus. I mean, all things considered, it really lands on really one thing. I mean, besides the Christmas lights, which are fabulous at Irvine Park and, and the bridge by the Pablo Center, there are Christmas traditions, of course, with family gatherings and ugly sweaters, white elephant gifts, uh, Christmas parties, Secret Santa, all the rest. But the centerpiece, the actual centerpiece of Christmas is really the nativity. Uh, we have sets, nativity sets, at our house from all around the world. We have nativity sets from Africa and from South America and Ecuador. We have nativity sets from Europe, actually. We have nativity sets from Israel. We have homemade nativity sets. We also have a nativity set from Malta. That's where they make Playmobil. We have one of those too. But you can, the thing that about, what's interesting about nativity sets is there are some nativity sets that miss certain pieces. Like you can have a nativity set and have no star. You can have a nativity set that has no wise men or shepherds or cows. But there is something specific that has to be in every nativity set, and that's the one that's lying in the manger. Now, millions of people have bent their knees to the fact of who is in the manger, and maybe you're asking the question, is Christmas even unbelievable? We respond to this question by asking this looking and stepping back and realizing what God has done in the nativity, and that is he's invaded our world. He's come and taken on flesh. In fact, it's all symbolized or put down or compacted into one word, and that one word is Emmanuel, God with us. But can we really believe that? I mean, is this little fragile manger enough to take my guilt and, and hurt? And not just mine, but millions and millions and millions of people. All of us struggle with guilt. What do I do with that? Loneliness when my head hits the pillow. The understanding of emptiness when I pursue things and pursue things and they end up being uh, a road that's a dead end. And then what about death? When we come to death, what will hold us? There's a New York pastor who's a best-selling author as well. He's a brilliant man, and he made this comment. His name is uh, Pastor Timothy Keller. He said this, If Christmas is just a legend, in a sense that you and I are on our own, in a sense you and I are on our own, but if it's true, if the Christmas story is true, as the Gospel of John and eyewitnesses say so, you and I can be saved by grace. Or in other words, we can be saved as a gift. That didn't, we didn't do anything for that. Earlier this month, my wife Julie and I attended a, uh, a movie along with other people from our congregation. And there was a Christian music worship leader by the name of Phil Wickham. I really like this guy. And he made a comment that the entire theater at the mall just busted up when he said that. He said, I grew up hearing the Christmas story so many times as a kid, but I kind of put the Christmas story in the category of Frodo from Lord of the Rings Narnia from C.S. Lewis and Harry Potter, a nice story. Now, don't be offended by that. The laughter in the crowd was people kind of saying, yeah, I wonder, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? How do we know that 
Christ really existed. I mean, what's interesting about this nativity and this manger is that it literally cuts time in half. The birth of Christ divides the common area before, before Christ, B.C. and A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. But even those outside, outside of the gospel writers, talk about the impact of Christ. There was a Jewish writer by the name of Josephus, and he wasn't a follower of Jesus, not at all. And he actually wrote in 62 AD, about 30 years after Jesus died, he talked about those who were followers of Christ who were being put to death because he was the Messiah. There was a man by the name of Tacticus who was a Jewish journalist, and he was trying to explain this destruction that had happened in Rome because of crazy Nero. And he, he said the reason why Nero burned, the, burned Rome down was it was because of followers of the one that they call the Christ, the Messiah. There are others as well too. So it wasn't just those who were followers of Christ who talked of his existence, but those outside. And his followers were, were interesting, broken men and women. They weren't influential people, not at all. In fact, when, when God came down in the form of a child, he, he appeared to shepherds who were really deserted people, who weren't thought of as high, highly educated. It wasn't a profession that you would want to go into. That's who God appeared to, to tell the good news of Christ. But what's really interesting that helps us kind of step back and go, I wonder if this is believable and Christ is who he said he is, is that in a sense, those who are gospel writers time-stamped and had location services on. Here's what I mean by that. You can actually go and research this and find out that what Dory read was, now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, a real guy, about 6 B.C., 4 B.C., and a census would be taken of the whole empire. This wasn't the first sentence to take place while Quirinius was the governor of Rome. It was a time where God's people were waiting waiting for a, a young, for a Messiah to come, to bring them back to their glory days. It was a time called pa Pax Romana, where there was peace in Rome, and there was incredible infrastructure in one common language and a common cur currency. And, and Rome had brought these Jewish people under heavy, heavy oppression because they conquered nations, and there were all kinds of countries with their religious system. They quote-unquote, allowed Judaism to take place. They taxed them heav hev heavily. But these Jews were waiting for a deliverer to come, a deliverer that would bring them back to their glory days, the glory days of David, when they were the superpower. But that's not how God worked at all. Now, when we consider about Christmas, if it's believable or not, we have to step back and ask this question. And this is a great question. How can you know it's true? And how can you actually trust what the Bible says? Those who are followers of Jesus trust the scriptures. And you might be sitting here this evening or watching online and saying, I'm not so sure I can even trust the scriptures. I mean, how can we know that they're even true? Well, just step back and think about this. 17 days ago, our country celebrated the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. In the words of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a day of infamy. There's still survivors that are around from Pearl Harbor. Do we trust their testimony? Uh, think about it this way as well, too. 
Ask someone who is maybe 30 or 35. Ask them this question, over 30 or 35, excuse me. Ask them this question. Where were you on 9-11? Do you remember what you were doing? Do you remember the room that you were in? They can tell you exactly. Or ask anybody who's 65 or older where they were on November 22nd, 1963, when President John F. Kennedy was shot. They can tell you exactly. You see, a couple weeks ago, I was watching a football game of my favorite team, and we were probably losing, uh, just saying. And I saw this commercial for Amazon Echo, and it kind of reminded me of, about the fact that people remember significant events in their lives. So I wanted to show this to you. Lexum, play our favorite song again. Okay. I only now, we're not going to stand up as a congregation and sway, just to tell you that, okay? But my whole point about that is people remember significant events. Significant events. It's marked in their life. They won't forget it. So you got to ask this question. Why would you put something in the scriptures that don't help advance your cause? I mean, if you're going to start a global movement called Christianity, if you're going to brand it, why would you have something in the scriptures that's A, so embarrassing, or shows your mess? The Gospel of Mark, which is the second gospel in the scriptures, Good scholarship says that it was written by Peter, the same Peter who was good friends with Jesus, one of Jesus' best friends. And it's his eyewitness account. And the Gospel of Mark is really messy, and it's particularly messy for Peter. Let me show you in just one chapter. The setting is the last day of Jesus' life. And these scriptures from Mark chapter 14 show you this mess. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied this very night before the rooster crows, twice you will deny me three times. But Peter kept insisting, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the others said the same thing. A couple verses later, same chapter, same night. While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the servant girls to the high priest came down and saw him warming himself there. She looked at Peter and said, you are also with Jesus of the Nazarene. But he denied it. I do not know or even understand what you're talking about. Then he went out to the gateway and the rooster crowed. Then the servant girl saw him again and said to those standing by, this man is one of them, but he denied it again. And after a little while, while those standing nearby said once more to Peter, surely you're one of them, for you too are the Galilean. But he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And you may ask yourself the question, wouldn't it be wise to leave that out? 
I mean, if you want to start a global movement, if you want to brand Christianity, if you want to promote it, why wouldn't you leave that out? It only makes sense in that a message for the broken and for the guilty, there's hope. And the hope lies in the nativity, the one who is the focus of the nativity. In the first century Jewish culture, this is how things worked. First century Jewish culture was very anti-female, an incredible bias against women. Sadly and wrongly, that was Jewish culture of Jesus' day. No one would take the testimony of a mom, of a grandma, of a sister, or of a, of a gal seriously. It's just the way it is. So this growing movement notes in all four Gospels the resurrection of Jesus. It was women who saw Jesus first, and people didn't believe it. You pick that up specifically in Mark 16 and Luke 24. So why wasn't that left out of Scripture? If you're trying to convince a Jewish culture that the Son of God rose from the dead, why wouldn't you leave that out if that's kind of the bias of the day? It only makes sense. It only makes sense if the resurrection of Christ is true. Then you leave it in. It only makes sense if actually the nativity points to the cross. And as the Apostle Paul who writes over half the New Testament, writes, the cross is foolishness to the Jew. And to those who are non-Jews, it's like, no thanks. There was a Canadian Baptist minister in 1926 by the name of Dr. James Allen Francis. He wrote this very famous poem called One Solitary Life. And in the fourth paragraph, he writes this, Jesus was only 33. When the tide of public opinion turned against him, his friends ran away, and one of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies, and he went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves, and while he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. And when Jesus was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. That's the founder of Christianity. You wouldn't say very successful, would you? But it takes one to know one. By that I mean it takes a leader to know a leader. And so listen to what Napoleon said about Christ. Na great Napoleon, the French leader, said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. But on what do we rest the creation of our genius we rested upon force but Jesus Christ founded his entire empire on love and sacrifice and at this hour millions millions would die for him so is Christmas believable it's time stamped its location services are on the eyewitnesses that write about him write about things that don't make themselves look better. But there's something at the very key of it that makes us scratch our heads. Like, what about the virgin birth? That's like a miracle, isn't it? That's kind of hard to believe. How do you believe something that's supernatural? And by the way, it's been critical to the Christian church for 2,000 years because each time 
when God's people take the Lord's Supper, we say this, and I believe in Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary. How do you prove something that's supernatural? How do you do that? Well, there's some things that you can't prove, but you see it and you go, that's true. I get it. That's wrong. Like ethical truth, we see when boundaries are abused, whether it's assault or harassment, we see it and we go, no, 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 that's out of bounds. That should not be tolerated. How could that be possible? And we agree. There's something called moral truth. And when we see it in practice, we go, that's true. I see it, and it's a good thing. Let me give you an example. And I've shared this example with our congregation over the last couple years. I saw this for a decade. I cared for my parents. My mom was first diagnosed with dementia, and then 12 months later, my father with Alzheimer's. And most of the care fell on my shoulders. And I didn't know what to do. And I, taught, I found great encouragement in the testimony of a man by the name of Dr. Robert McQuilkin who is the president of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. He left his place of leadership, even though other Christian leaders said that he shouldn't. He left his place of leadership to care for his wife, Muriel, who was suffering with dementia. A very famous Christian leader said, just divorce her, or at best put her in a nursing home. Don't deal with her. And he said, it is my honor to care for her and love her because she has cared for me and loved me all of these years. And as I read that book called A Promise Kept, I said, okay, this is true. I can't prove it, but it's true. It's true. So even the miracle of a virgin birth, I mean, Jesus' own mom said, how am I going to conceive a child? I've never been with a man before. Jesus' stepdad, Joseph, when he found out that his fiancée was pregnant, he wanted to divorce her quietly so that she wouldn't be put to shame. He wanted to cover so that she wouldn't be stoned or she wouldn't be ostracized for the rest of her life. This is kind of hard to get your head around. Like, why would this be the case? Larry King, the great journalist for CNN, in June of 1990, he said to People Magazine, the fantasy interview that I have is with Jesus Christ. And what I would do is... If I could, I would ask him one question. If he believed he was born of the Virgin Mary, because whatever he answers, it will change or reinforce the story of history. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a World War II casualty and a Lutheran minister, said, if Jesus Christ isn't true God, how could he help us? And if he's not true man, how could he help us? And in the course of Jesus' life, he never clarifies it. Why? In Mark chapter 6, you read this account where, where, where the, the leaders say, excuse me, Mark, uh, John chapter 8, verse 41, the leaders say, well, we're not illegitimate children. And it's nuanced in such a way as to say, are you? Wow. I mean, it went on from there after there were, there were rumors, second century rumors in Jewish literature that Jesus was a product of a Roman soldier. And you got to ask yourself the question, why Jesus, you, you fed the 5,000, you walked on water, you raised a guy by the name of Lazarus from the dead. Why didn't you clear it up and just say, my birth was supernatural? Why didn't you do it? And I think that there's a hint and there's a clue 
in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Just a short phrase. He didn't despise the shame. He didn't despise the shame. He took the shame of all those that are assembled here, all those who are watching online, and he took it upon himself. He knows our thoughts. He knows our deeds. He knows our secrets. And he doesn't despise that and say, you're not good enough for me. He takes it upon himself, even not clarifying his birth and how he came about. So ultimately, you come to Christmas and you say, why does it matter? It matters because of this. It's a real account. Billy Graham said, Christmas is not a myth. It's not a tradition, and it's not a dream. It is a glorious reality that God came in the flesh. You don't earn this. You don't earn this gift of salvation. It doesn't just change your life after you're dead. It changes your life now. Because that one word for Christmas, if you want to summarize it, it means this, Emmanuel, that God is with us. So the question is often asked, well, isn't being good enough really all that matters to God? Well, the question is, are you a good person? Have you ever lied? Have you ever taken something that wasn't yours? Have you ever even thought about such things? There aren't a lot of people who are arrogant enough to say they've never done anything wrong. If being a good person is all that really matters, then you and I, it doesn't matter. If being a good person is all that really matters, then you and I don't matter because we aren't consistently good. If an all-powerful God exists, it's reasonable to assume he has the power to eliminate moral imperfection. How can morally imperfect humans be united with a morally perfect God? How can you do that? But Christianity offers a solution. God came to us in human form, and Jesus took the punishment he didn't deserve to provide us with access we can't earn. So let me tell you the story, the story of a professor from MIT, a brilliant woman. Her name is Rosalind Picard. She says this. Here's her story. As early as grade school, when I was a voracious reader, I identified with being smart. In high school, I led a classroom debate arguing, and I lost. I was dumbstruck that I lost, but it was, I figured it, the group was swayed by the most popular girl in class. She had a swimming pool in her backyard and threw fun parties. I guess that helps. At times, I began to earn money babysitting. And one of my favorite families was a young couple. Both the husband, a doctor, and the wife were really sharp. One night after paying me, they invited me to church. I was stunned. People smart actually go to church? When Sunday morning came around, I told them I had a stomachache, and then they invited me the next week, and I came down with another phantom stomachache, and the more they persisted, the more I struggled to invent convincing excuses. You try faking an illness to a doctor several weeks in a row. Eventually, the couple tried a different tact. They said, you know, going to church is not what matters. What matters is what you believe. Have you read the Bible? I figured that if I wanted to be an educated person, it might be wise to read the best-selling book of all times. And the doctor suggested starting with the book of Proverbs, reading one chapter daily for a month. To my surprise, Proverbs was full of wisdom. 
I had to pause while reading and, and think. So I quietly bought a different translation. And when I read this translation, I felt this strange sense of being spoken to. It was disturbing yet oddly attractive. And I began wondering where there really might be a God. In high school, I had a favorite Jewish teacher who ran a gifted program that let me devote one class each semester to whatever I wanted. And so I studied Buddhism and Hinduism and several other faiths. I visited temples and synagogues and mosques and other holy places. And more than anything, I wanted to get past this religion phase because I knew I didn't want religion, but despite my wishes, an internal battle raged. There were two passages in Scripture that I found especially troubling. One was Matthew 10:33, but whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. In Matthew 12:30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. I resented what I felt like was an unwelcome ultimatum. I didn't want to believe in God, but I still felt a peculiar sense of love and presence I couldn't ignore. During my freshman year in college, I reconnected with a friend I had met at a summer honors program. He was a straight-A student and a star on both the basketball court and the football field. He helped me with difficult phys physics homework, and when he invited me to church, well, this time, I felt fine. When I went to church, the pastor prompted many questions. I started to raise my hand in the middle of a sermon while everyone was sitting quietly, and I, my friend nudged me and said, we don't ask questions during the sermon. I knew that Jesus claimed to be the way to God, but I've been trying to avoid anything Jesus-related. I couldn't help hearing his name without the word Jesus freak attached. But the pastor got my attention when he asked, who's the Lord of your life? He discussed what happens when you, a human being, put yourself on that throne. I was so intrigued. I was the captain of my ship, but, it was but was it possible that God would actually be willing to lead me? From there, I came to a deeper understanding of what it meant to have a living relationship with God through faith in Jesus. It seemed silly at first to pray about this. After all, I still had doubts about his even existence. But I prayed, Jesus, I ask you to be the Lord of my life. And my world changed dramatically, as if a flat, black-and-white existence suddenly turned full color and three-dimensional, but I lost nothing of my urge to seek new knowledge. In fact, I felt emboldened to ask even tougher questions about how the world works. I felt joy and freedom, but also a heightened sense of responsibility and challenge. Have you ever tried to assemble something mechanical and it only kind of works? Maybe the wheels spin, but nothing smoothly, and then they realize you were missing a piece. When you finally put it together, it works beautifully. And that's how I felt when I handed my life over to God. Today, I'm a professor at MIT. I have incredible colleagues who have helped me translate my lab research into difference-making products, including a smartwatch that helps caregivers save the lives of people with epilepsy. Pretty cool. I know there is a God of unfathomable greatness and love who freely enters into relationship with all who confess their sins and call upon his name. I once thought I was too smart to believe in God. Now I know I was an arrogant fool who snubbed the greatest mind in the cosmos. The author of all science, mathematics, art, and everything else there is to know. Today, I walk humbly, having received 
the most undeserved grace. I walk with joy. At the end of this message, I want to invite you to a couple things. One, for some of you, I just want to push you a little bit to consider and ponder what you've heard today. On the back side of your bulletin, there are two books that have been really helpful to me and encouraged me, not just for this message, but in my understanding of who Christ is. One is called Person of Interest, and the other one is simply called, where the sermon title came from, Is Christmas Unbelievable? You can get them both on Amazon. Secondly, I want to encourage you to pick up a book that's at the Welcome Center where there's hot chocolate at the end of this service and you want to grab a cup. It's the book of Mark, that messy book that includes Peter. It's a free copy. By picking it up, it doesn't just mean you're messy. I'm messy too. But it's hope for messy people. And it's a good, good word. It's free of charge. You can just pick one up. It's an easy, easy read. Probably take you 30 minutes to read the whole thing. And then finally this, I want to give this invitation. If you've never asked Christ into your heart, if you never have asked Christ into your heart, today on Christmas Eve is a great day to do that. Like Professor Picard said, it'll change your life. If you've made a mess of your life and you say, God could never deal with me, he could never forgive me, this is the proof. God came in the flesh and Jesus accepted the shame, the shame of our brokenness, the shame of our hurt, the shame of our guilt, the loneliness, all the things that we're embarrassed about. And if you're sitting here going, there's no hope for me, that's not true. That's a lie. Christ died on the cross to forgive our sins. And so if you would, if you close your eyes and bow your heads, if you've never asked Christ to be the Lord of your life, it might even be something as simple as, help me, Jesus. Have mercy on me, Jesus. Come into my heart, Jesus. You may have blown it again, time and time again. But knowing the God of the universe who's promised to forgive your sins, to wash you clean, you can't turn that gift away. Pray a simple prayer. God, have mercy on me. Forgive my sins. Wash me clean. Give me a hunger for your word. Help me follow and obey you. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time or asking God to come into your heart and make you new, then based on the word of God and the full authority of the word of God, I have this good news to tell you that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and you're going to heaven. Now these next three steps are super important if you pray that prayer. Listen, first of all, you got to tell someone. You got to tell someone within 24 hours. And if they're not here, text them. Send them a Christmas text and say, hey, you wouldn't believe what I got for Christmas. I got my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Tell them. Secondly, you got to read the Bible. You got to read God's Word. You can start with the book of Mark. There's a free copy for you, I told you. Take one of them. No strings attached. And then thirdly, if it's not here, if you're from out of town, if it's not here, find a church that lifts up the name of Jesus that you can grow and grow and grow and grow. Understand this, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. It helps keep you one, though. Amen?